right, and we are on, and uh, I'm with Lee. You guys know Lee already. Uh, we've we've been hanging out for the last five weeks, I think now. Uh, I think this is the fifth week or, or so, and um, and so I trust that anyone who's been following our conversation is uh, ready to go with the last part of uh, kind of what we had planned. We've got a rough outline that we're working with, and um, it's been a great conversation uh, so far. The feedback's been great. Um, it's just been good to see people wrestling with this and uh, just working through the nuts and bolts of it. And, um, you know, Lee, I've really appreciated the way you brought some, I don't want to say fresh angles because they're not sort of, you know, new, but, but you know, just, just making it uh, nice and sharp as we move through this whole thing and just a beautiful outline, just a work of art. I've mentioned that before, by the way, uh, you and your outlines. You know, that's a thing on its own right there. Uh, but <laughs> um, so we're on that last stage of, of, of the outline. Um, and so we might, you know, we might move out and broaden out from that point. We'll see where we go. But just to give a quick run in uh, before I hand over to Lee to kind of uh, uh, think about um, some sort of way to, to get us started here. Um, we've basically uh, covered the Mono Covenantal versus um, Federal Theology. I'm just going to switch my notifications off. Sorry if you heard that beep. Um, that is amateur hour. Okay, um, and we've we've done mono covenantalism. We've done federal theology. Uh, we've looked at the difference there. Uh, the law gospel contrast is a big one, and then uh, following on from that, <clears throat> the broad versus narrow gospel, which I think is really what I think helped a lot of people and got a lot of people thinking. Um, I found that deeply helpful and encouraging. Um, then um, there is a um, this matter of whether the covenant of grace is actually conditional or not, which follows through from that <clears throat> as we think about uh, the place of the imperative and repentance and faith and all of that within the covenant of grace. Um, and uh, the, the, really, we've been alluding to it the whole time, but now we get to look at it front and center, and that's the third use of the law. And I think that as we talk about this, a lot of what I've heard people struggle with will kind of click into place, at least in terms of whether they agree or not agree. But, um, you know, I hopefully agree, I think. And um, and a lot of what we'll talk about here is really the, I don't know, the practical end of, of what we're looking at. Um, so that's just uh, me reading your outline, Lee. I don't know if there's anything um, else you wanted to add there by way of running. No, I think that that's a good, nice little preparation for what we want to talk about today. I, I feel like this whole issue of the third use of the law, um, it, it ties in a little bit to last time when we talked about the issue of conditionality mm -hmm. in the covenant of grace. Uh, I wouldn't say that the third use of the law is a condition of the covenant of grace. Right. But yeah. I would say that uh, we are, that is to follow the Lord in obedience to his commandments is one of the duties uh, that is incumbent upon those that are members of the covenant of grace. Right. And of course we do so in response to God's grace. Yeah. Uh, the covenant of grace comes to us through Christ, through his work, effectual calling, applying the work of Christ to us, drawing us into union with Christ working faith in our hearts, but then that faith, if it is genuine saving faith that has been produced in us by the Holy Spirit, will produce good fruit. And yeah. the fruit is the obedience that flows from faith. It's it's uh, following the Lord in his commandments, uh, continually putting to death uh, our sinful deeds and desires mm -hmm. and seeking to please him and to be obedient to him, not perfectly, 
not meritoriously, not as uh, the basis of our relationship with God. Mm. Uh, it's not as though our standing before God hangs upon uh, how much progress we make in our sanctification. But uh, yeah, it is the natural outworking of what it means to be uh, brought into the covenant of grace. Right. And so the third use of the law then, I wouldn't call it, I wouldn't classify it under the conditions of the covenant of grace. The condition is faith. Yes. yes. But I would consider it to be the natural result mm. of being a member of the covenant of grace. And so yeah. it belongs into the category of what is required of us as those who are saved and justified and savingly united to Christ. Yeah. Yeah. Brilliant. Um, <clears throat> just thinking about that conditional. Um, uh, unconditional thing that we spoke about last time. One of the bits of feedback I got, which I thought was kind of interesting, is just um, thinking about, and we might have even mentioned something like this, where Abraham was, I think we did actually, we, we mentioned that Abraham was just completely passive as that that um, covenant ratification process takes place. He's, you know, there he is, um, uh, you know, sleeping, essentially. But um, it's also true that he's this paragon of, of you know, the guy who is justified, um, you know, by faith or by grace through faith. And, um, and so there you have in Abraham, these two elements, right? The, you know, you, uh, there is just a, a, a total, uh, if we're talking about the meritorious grounding, it's all on Christ. It's all the covenant of grace. And then, you know, in terms of that conditionality, it's all, also beautifully illustrated in, in Abraham in that he believed and he therefore entered in. And then it's almost like now, well, I suppose, what is it, Genesis 17, where you start getting into the, all right, now go and walk before me, you know, and 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 uh, live out of that. And um, and so I suppose we, we start talking about that. You ended up uh, bringing some client in toward the end, um, just just showing how that fits um, and how uh, works and uh, and the fruit of, of faith um, is eventually expressed. And that's not contrary to the covenant of grace. Um you know, it, it's it's so fragile that you realize as you speak about it, like you could almost st- say something wrong very, very quickly, very easily. You could. You know, you it's could. just such a, it's almost like talking about the Trinity or something where you, you're just like, yeah. oh, let's be careful. Let's be careful because any any sort of step out of place could, could mean something severe. But, it's um, so true. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and that, that's why I really appreciate what we're going to be looking at. Well, the whole discussion, but especially this idea of the third use of the law. Um, yeah. So you've got, you've got, uh, you've mentioned, you know, you want to talk about the mono-covenantal definition. Um, I'm interested to hear what you, you have to say there. And uh, and then also, you know, eventually want to get to that end point of that paper that you wrote, I suppose, with the law in the hands of Christ and thinking about that. Uh, so where, right. do, you, where so, do you want to take us? So this whole topic of the third use of the law, it's, it's, um, it's a difficult one. It's not easy. There, mm. There's a, a bit of wrestling in my own heart over it. Right. So on the one hand, uh, you know, the third use of the law makes perfect sense in terms of the categories of guilt, grace, and gratitude, the Heidelberg Catechism, right? Yeah, yeah. The, the Ten Commandments are expounded in that third category, mm-hmm. the gratitude. Mm-hmm. Guilt is, you know, the law driving us to Christ, showing us our sinfulness. Then we have grace. We have the gospel, we have uh, justification by faith alone, and then gratitude is the response mm. of those who are justified. And the Ten Commandments are expounded under that third category of gratitude. Mm-hmm. That makes perfect sense in, in 
it's totally fine and it's great. But then it, it seems like sometimes that way of describing things can easily become, it can sort of turn into a little bit of a legalistic mm. thing where you start going through the Ten Commandments yeah. and each commandment is very you know, somber and mm. there's even, you know, some threats as associated with some of the commandments mm. and <clears throat> it's, it's presented in a way that's very, um, it sounds kind of works oriented, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And it's and part so, of that covenant too. That's yeah, the thing. Yeah. It's just like, it is a works covenant, you know? So you're not, right. you're not deluded when you're thinking that, um, cause it's coming through in the old Testament. And then, and then sometimes what yeah. happens is that if the law is really preached in all of its depth and rigor and the total yeah. perfection that's required in the law, then that third use of the law under gratitude becomes once again, bringing you back to the beginning of the process, showing you your sinfulness and yeah. how far you fall short. Right. Your need of God's grace. And then you go through the three, G's again, go grace and gratitude. Right, right. Um, and so there's a bit of a tension then because we're on the one hand, we want to say that <clears throat> the third use of the law is totally just a matter of gratitude. And it's not <clears throat> anything we're doing to earn our salvation. It's not anything that uh, in any way detracts from the standing that we have as being fully accepted in, in Christ mm -hmm. and his righteousness, his perfect obedience has been reckoned to our account. And so we are accepted in him. We are justified. Nothing can take that away from us. We are completely saved, irredeemed, uh, redeemed without any kind of qualification. Mm -hmm. There's no, there's no probation to our salvation yeah, in Christ. Yeah, amen. Yeah. But having said that, the more you focus on the third use of the law, it can sometimes begin to call those things into question and to mm. make you wonder, well, am I really living up to all of this? And am I really saved? And mm. it can have an effect on your assurance. Absolutely. And so yeah. for me, what I think is so crucial to understand is that there are uh, two ways that you can understand the third use of the law. Mm -hmm. There's a good way and a bad way. Okay. The good way is if you understand it in terms of federal theology and the whole context of covenant theology, right. that we're delivered from the law as a covenant of works, mm -hmm. but we are bound to the law as the covenant that comes to us from Christ, as in the new covenant, the mm -hmm. law in the hands of Christ. Mm -hmm. uh, that understanding of the third use of the law makes perfect sense, and mm -hmm. it helps to make things clear so that it doesn't in any way undermine the the graciousness of the covenant of grace right. and the freedom and the certainty and the assurance that we have in Christ. Yeah. Yeah. But there's a bad way. And the bad way is if you don't really understand the contrast between the covenant of works and the covenant of grace, if yeah. you're a monocovenantalist, right, right. Then you will see all of the covenants of the Bible, including the pre-fall covenant with Adam. Mm -hmm and the new covenant in Christ as being fundamentally the same type of covenant. That right. is that they are all gracious covenants. And in response to God's grace, God requires us to trust and obey. Mm. And faith then itself becomes kind of a work or a condition. And faith itself becomes sort of the first step of obedience. Mm -hmm. You know, faith even becomes defined in a way as obedience mm. so that it becomes just a matter of, all the covenants are covenants of grace. There's mm. no works covenant anywhere in there, whether with Adam or with Israel. Mm -hmm. And so it's just all grace. Yeah, you've been, you've been sounds constituted good. by grace. Right. And now you're being regulated. And it's just the way, as we said earlier, I mean, that's just... Grace constitutes, law yeah. regulates. Right. 
the law and the gospel are just mushed together into one big monocovenantal hash. Mm-hmm. You just stir it all together, and then faith and works are all stirred together. Yeah. And then what that does is that understanding of the third use of the law does really attack your assurance. Yeah. Because totally. now you're just brought back under the law. Oh, and then they'll say, oh, no, not as a legalistic thing, not as if you're trying to merit salvation. Right, 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 right. Yeah. But you're still under the law and you have to obey and you have to uh, bring forth these fruits in order to show that you really are saved. Yeah. And if you're not doing that and if you don't see enough fruit, if you don't see enough sanctification, then you should question your assurance, mm. question mm. whether you really are saved to begin with and whether mm. you really are a part of this covenant of grace. And so the covenant of grace becomes really a covenant of works. Yeah. It's not real works. It's not true, absolute works, right. the works that were required of Adam in the garden, perfect obedience, or the works that are required of Christ, perfect, mm. absolute fulfillment of the law. It's not a true covenant of works. It's a watered-down covenant of works mm. totally. in which yeah. God requires you to be obedient and faithful. And you just basically have to be as faithful as you can and hope for the best. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, maybe your faithfulness isn't good enough. So you just got to keep trying harder. And the, and the way that the, the pastor will, if a pastor holds to this monocovenantal view of the third use of the law, the way he will preach it is in a way that uh, really attacks your assurance and says you shouldn't have assurance. Mm, mm. Instead, what you should have is this constant recommitting yourself to more and more covenant faithfulness mm-hmm. for fear that you're going to fall out of mm. the covenant of grace, which they've defined as a covenant of works. Yeah. And everything is dependent. Everything hinges upon how well you are doing and living the Christian life. Totally. And it's almost like, I mean, just hearing you talk, I mean, I'm hearing almost what I imagine it would be like to send it a, a kind of Roman Catholic minister, uh, at least a ministry, yeah. except right. with, without the, the priestly absolution even you know just just kind of yeah at least you've got that uh, yeah. and you can go to the priest and just get absolved to say your hail marys and at least you got a way to move right. forward whereas uh, it just kind of just to be left with that pure unbridled oh my goodness am i doing enough you know th- that would be that would be difficult and then also you know just hearing you talk i mean i imagine that would be something similar that um, you know, Jesus was dealing with with the Pharisees and and uh, even the Galatians and and that sort of thing. You've got, you know, obviously they they realize that there must be some elements of blood sacrifice and mercy in view, and but it's basically trying to just do the best you can, you know, and um, and and you know, just just thinking of yourself in that light, and uh, that's that's how you get into heaven, pretty much. Yeah, and it's not it's not um, an accident that in Roman Catholic theology. Uh, which we could view as a form of this monocovenantalism, if you will. Mm-hmm. It's not an accident that in Roman Catholic theology, having assurance is viewed as a bad thing. Yeah, wow. Interesting. You're not supposed to have assurance. Yeah, because that's going to stifle your desire to yeah. obey. And If you have assurance, that's just going to make you fat and lazy and say, oh, well, it's in the bag. I'm going to heaven so I can just live as I please. Isn't that crazy? Oh, so scary. it's actually good for you not to have assurance. Not having assurance is good because that's what motivates you to try even harder yeah. in the Christian life. Wow. So, and it's it's amazing that they've actually worked that through to that level. And it's almost like yeah. with Protestantism, or, or at least this kind of reformed, or I don't know, even the way it's spilling over into evangelicalism, you you basically um, 
you know, they, they haven't yet worked it out all the way through. So it's like they're living in this uh, schizophrenic tension almost where, where uh, as you say, you know, it's like, no, no, it's all gracious. It's all whatever. And we want you to have assurance, but there's no way you can ever get it. So it's, it's almost this tormented existence, you know. Um, right. They almost just wish they would kind of land on one side and go, oh, the assurance is bad. Don't do it, you know. Um, and, and that at least would be a side. But, um, yeah, it's, it's crazy. I mean, it, you know, and I would say just also just perhaps just one more comment before you move on there. Um, the, it used to be, I think, that when you talk monocovenantal and that sort of thing, you're thinking of like a little segment, in my mind at least, you're thinking of a segment within Reformed quarters there. But, you know, now it, it feels just like it's, it's one way or another. It's hit the mainstream. Um, and it's just it's the way people think. And especially as they get into Reformed theology, you know, I'm thinking dealing with uh, X-29, you got a lot of that that neo well, you know, the new Calvinist uh, uh, wrote in there, and a lot of people just the the classic sort of uh, introduction to some some broad Calvinism, and uh, and then they get excited about it, they get into it, and it's you know it's no sooner that they're into like what I would think of as the wrong authors there, moving them in exactly uh, the direction you've been talking about, and um, and the the goal is always to to. You know, I've never heard them say I want to magnify, you know, legalism or anything like that. They're always trying to uh, magnify the grace of God by talking in this mono covenant, uh, covenantal way, as we've mentioned before. But uh, you know, in, in so doing, they've, they've they've ended up getting themselves into a real pickle, as it were. Um, and and so, yeah, again, I'm hoping that <clears throat> this will be helpful just to just to get them thinking about that and untying some of those knots. Yeah, if you look at the writings of the Merrowmen, the Merrowmen were the men, the Scottish Presbyterians in the early 1700s, mm-hmm. who were influenced by that book, The Merrow of Modern Divinity. Yeah. I have my copy here, The Merrow of Modern Divinity, uh, ed, written by Edward Fisher <clears throat> a century before, mm-hmm. like 1645. But then that book was lost, but then it was rediscovered mm-hmm. by the Scottish Presbyterians. Mm-hmm. So you have, you know, Thomas Boston, mm-hmm. you have the Erskine brothers. Uh, you have the associate Presbyterian church that came out of that. They left the mainstream church of Scotland and they continued the seceder tradition that was influenced by the Merrill. If you look at their writings, um, for example, I think it was in 1741, somewhere in there, right after they had left from the church of Scotland, mm-hmm. they, they wrote a testimony to describe why they, why this separate denomination existed. Mm. And, in that testimony, they talk about all of these, what we would call monocovenantal trends within church history. Mm-hmm. Um, they talk about, of course, you know, the Galatian heresy. Okay, yeah. And the Galatian heresy is the first, that's the first time you really see it, in, right. at least within the church. Right, 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 right. Maybe yeah. it existed before within Judaism, but within yeah. the church, you see this idea of, no, you've got to keep the law. You've got to be circumcised and keep the law. Mm-hmm. And it's Paul who comes along and says, no, Galatians 3.10, right? right? Cursed is everyone who does not continue in all the things written in the book of the law to do that. Yeah. If you put yourself under the law, you're obligated to keep the whole law. Yeah. You can't do that, exactly. right? Yeah. So uh, it starts there, but then it develops into, you know, as the church evolves, you have the Roman Catholic Church and the Marrow men and they're writing their tracing out church history mm-hmm. and they trace this neonomian monocovenantal view of things 
from the Galatians to the Roman Catholic Church, but then they say even in the Reformation, and so they point out the Arminians, the Remonstrants, hmm. they point out Richard Baxter, they called them yeah, the yeah. Baxterians, but now we call them Neonomians. Right, Baxter, that scoundrel. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What was Baxter saying? He was saying that the Old Covenant was too hard, so God canceled that and made a New Covenant. Right. The New Covenant just requires something easier, and that is to believe in, in the Lord Jesus Christ and to be as obedient as you can. Mm. Wow. So that's what that's what we're justified. We're justified by obedient faith. Yeah. Yeah. And work faith then becomes a work. It becomes a condition of this monocovenantal covenant of work slash covenant of grace mm. Mm. by which we are justified if we just believe and try to be as obedient as we can. Mm. And uh, it turns faith itself into obedience, really. There really is no distinction between faith and obedience. Mm. It's just obedience, right? Yeah, yeah. Exactly. And that becomes the basis of your assurance. Mm. And so what's so interesting is how the Marrow men, they saw this saw thing yeah. as being a continual problem throughout church history. It's not mm. just, they weren't just simply saying, well, there was this recent thing that happened in the yeah. Church of Scotland around the year 1700 when the Church of Scotland kind of got a little bit legalistic and so we're reacting against that. Mm. No, they're saying this is like this trend throughout mm. the church. The church has always had this problem. Yeah. I've heard it described like so, the screensaver of the human heart. You know, where, yeah. you know how those screensavers just keep popping up? <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> that's such a those annoying screensavers. Uh, it's kind of that's yeah. how it feels to me. It just keeps popping up, you know. It just like I thought I'd turn that thing off. <laughs> exactly. I went, boom, here it comes <laughs> I went into the actual setting thing and right. I turned it off. I spent like five minutes of my life switching that exactly. thing off, and here it is. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And yeah. the reason for that, as Luther said, is because the covenant of works is hardwired into our hearts by creation. Yeah. Yeah. It's the gospel that we have to keep hearing over and over again because it's so contrary to our rational expectations of how things work. Yeah, yeah. The, 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 way, we were, the way we're hardwired to believe is that if I'm more obedient, God will be more accepting of mm, me. Mm. God will love me more. God will have more favor toward me if I'm more obedient to him. Yeah. And it's, that's why it's those who really understand grace who really understand the true nature of the law. Yeah. Yeah, amen. That's why Paul is the one who had to say, you guys can't do this. You forgot about Deuteronomy 27, 26. Right. Exactly. Yeah. That you have to remain in all the things written in the book of the law. You have to continue. He uses two words there that show perfection. One is continue. Mm -hmm. And then in all. Continue in all the things written in the book of the law to do that. Wow. There's no, like, God doesn't just give you, you know, a B for doing your best effort. Right. Right. Yeah. The law requires absolute perfect obedience. Yeah. And then you also have the problem of if you start today and somehow manage to be perfect today, yes. and let's say you were able to do that for the rest of your life, which no one can, but let's right. say you were, yeah. you still have all your past sins. How are you going to deal with those? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. You can't wipe out your past sins simply by trying to be good going forward. Mm -hmm. You need the satisfaction of Christ. You need that Christ has to satisfy the law for us. He satisfies yeah. the law through his death and through his life, through his perfect obedience and fulfilling the law, and then by his satisfaction of the curse of the law mm. in his uh, bearing the wrath of God for us on the cross. Yeah. We need both. Totally. And so federal theology is the antidote to this monocovenantal, neonomian trend 
this screensaver that keeps popping back up in mm -hmm. church history? It's the answer to that because it has this clear-cut understanding of the law as a covenant of works, which is then fulfilled by Christ through his active and passive obedience. Mm -hmm. But then, stage three, it doesn't just leave us with an antinomian, therefore no law. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It says, no, we still are obligated to keep the law as our duty mm -hmm. within the covenant of grace, as those who are already justified and saved. Mm -hmm. But now the law comes to us not as a covenant of works, but as part of the covenant of grace. Mm. And so the narrow men had this great, this great language of the law in the hand of Christ. Yeah, I love that. And that's how they described it. Yeah. 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 Let me give you a quote from, it was actually going back before the narrow men to Edward Fisher himself. Okay. His dialogue. So the way the whole book is set up, the narrow modern divinity, it, it has, um, it has two major parts. Part one is on this whole federal theology, understanding the law as a covenant of works and as a covenant of grace. But then part two is an exposition of the Ten Commandments. Right. Part two on the exposition of the Ten Commandments, we can set that aside for a minute. That's not the key point here. The mm -hmm. key point is part one. Part one is divided into three sections. Section one is the law of works or the covenant of works. Mm -hmm. Section two is the law of faith or the covenant of grace. Mm -hmm. And section three is the law of Christ. Okay. And so this is federal theology, but applying it to this whole issue of the law mm. and the third use of the law. Mm. So the mm. law as a covenant of works is the law that was given to Adam before the fall and republished in a typological way with Israel. And this is the law that says, do this and live. Mm. This is the law as a covenant of works. It requires perfect obedience, going back to Deuteronomy 27, 28. Mm. The law of faith, they got this language of the law of works and the law of faith, of course, from Romans 3, 27. Right, right, right. Yep. Terms. Mm -hmm. The law of faith is just another term for the covenant of grace, mm -hmm. but it's the law as fulfilled by Christ. Christ yeah. is incarnate. He's born under the law, Galatians 4, 4. Right. He satisfies the law both in the aspect of his obedience and in the aspect of his suffering mm -hmm. both obeying the law to give the, to provide the righteousness that we could not provide and to uh, take away the curse of the law for mm -hmm. us mm -hmm. through his death so that's section two okay. the law of faith or the covenant of grace yeah and then section three is the third use of the law mm. the law of christ or mm. the law in the hand of christ mm. and so the language that they use there is this they say you know Edward Fisher says, beware that you receive not the Ten Commandments at the hands of God out of Christ, right. nor yet at the hands of Moses, but only at the hands of Christ. Brilliant. And so shall you be sure to receive them as the law of Christ. It's 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 almost hard to think how anyone could have a problem with that. You know what I mean? But, I, mean <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's like, amen, amen. Um, one, one thing I was thinking, though, um, which... I know a lot of reform guys don't like that law in the hand of Christ language um, or, you know, Christ's law kind of understanding it, it, because of the new covenant theology, guys, they got hold of that and, and sort of made use of a similar style of rhetoric, I think. Um, do you know anything about that or do you think um, that has any um, 
Uh, anyway, for, I remember looking at it a while ago, <clears throat> so I'm not too clear on the details. But from what I remember in looking at it, and maybe this um, jugged something for you, um, is is that they the reason that's they, they they talk about a new covenant law, but it's it's not in all in, in light of what you're talking about now, in that there's no covenant of grace or no no covenant of works. So it ends up being you know the same kind of rhetoric, but a completely different system of theology. And so it's almost like it's such a needless way to get tripped up on. I mean, you know, when I was um, you know any any conversation I've had with with reformed theology guys, really what they're concerned to protect is not a monocovenantalism. You know, obviously you'll get those guys out there, but the third use of the law, you know, that, that's mm-hmm. what they want to protect. And so really you're saying something that's bringing that out rather than, than, than pushing that away within a covenantal system. And, um, and I think it's only recently the new covenant theology sort of got off the ground. Um, so, you know, that's, you know, way before, certainly um, Edward Fisher or Thomas Boston weren't thinking in those terms when they were writing this down. Uh, any thoughts on that? Well, New Covenant theology is very different from this because yeah, New yeah. Covenant theology rejects the concept of the covenant of works. And that's important for people to they know. They don't believe you know, in that. They've they, yeah. they got a Calvinistic thing going, but yeah, they yeah. reject covenant theology entirely. Yeah. Um, and and so that's why they have to talk about some sort of commandment in the New Covenant being right. the law of Christ. And that's where the overlap lies in terms of the, the language. But, you know, the, the, the other itself. difference is that this understanding of the third use of the law, which is the marrow tradition mm-hmm. of understanding the third use of the law, this understanding of the third use of the law does not say that the Ten Commandments have been abolished and therefore now we don't have to keep them. We keep whatever Jesus and the apostles taught. Yes, that's another good one. Yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah, right. What they say is that what the Merrow guys say, and like I mentioned, this book is divided into two sections. Section yes. two is an exposition of the Ten Commandments. Excellent. Yeah. So what they're saying yeah. is, is that the Ten Commandments themselves, so what they do is they distinguish between the form and the matter. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. So the form and the matter are two distinct concepts. The matter of the Ten Commandments is the same. Mm-hmm. The matter, the, the fundamental moral requirements, the moral content mm-hmm. of the, the moral law of the Ten Commandments is unchanging throughout history, whether right. it's before the fall, after the fall, whether it's Abraham, Moses, mm-hmm. uh, Christ, the apostles today. Okay, the, the matter is the same, mm. but there's a form that is on top of the matter would that be the uh, covenantal enshrinement that's the covenantal aspect exactly so so the matter is the same but it comes in different forms Mm -hmm. so the form in which the covenant the form in which the law was given to adam was in the form of a covenant of works right do this and live the form in which it came to israel at mount sinai was also a works it had a works form to it, mm-hmm. at least at the typological layer of being able to inherit the land, do yeah. these things in order to live long in the land. Mm-hmm. But the form now in Christ is that it comes to us from the hands of Christ as part of the covenant of grace. Yeah, brilliant. Same matter, the same, yeah. you know, honor the Lord your God, you know, honor your parents, don't commit mm-hmm. adultery, the same Ten Commandments. Mm-hmm. But the form is do these things because you have already been made alive in Christ and because the inheritance has already been secured. Yeah. You're not doing these things to get the inheritance or to to live long in the inheritance. You're getting, you're doing these things because you already have the inheritance. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Beautiful. Yeah. And that's, that's, um, 
that's so helpful. I mean, that's really the the the. I mean, that's what they're getting at with any any sort of. Uh, I know in the confession, for example, they're basically saying. Um, you know, now the law is normative, it, it guides us in obedience, but not as a covenant of works, as a covenant of grace. And so, you know, it's really just a way to bring that concept out and make sure we're understanding it uh, right. as, as a, a total uh, enshrinement or an, an access to those moral, um, I don't know, requirements of God within that paradigm of grace. I mean, it's just, uh, it's key. Again, I don't, it's, it's really... Um, uh, and very different. I'm glad you pointed that out with the new covenant theology thing, because that's a great point. They just totally, the whole thing is gone, and then we've got to kind of find our new version of right. it via some random texts. And yeah, it's um, very different. Um, yeah. yeah, good. Another key thing, too, is that um, the distinction between the law as to its matter, which we could call the moral law, mm-hmm. and the law as to its form, mm-hmm. coming as a covenant of works or as part of the covenant of grace in yes. the hands of Christ. That distinction is not just unique to this one narrow group of Scottish Presbyterians in the 1700s right. who followed the Marrow. It's not just the Marrow men. Mm-hmm. This is something that's more widely understood, even Turretin. In fact, uh, Thomas Boston wrote his, he took this book, the Marrow. It was originally published in 1645, but then he republished it and added his notes. Didn't he and find Thomas it on the Boston, living room table of some sort of... Uh, uh-huh. Yeah, <laughs> he's a parishioner had it, house. you know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And he's like, what's so, this book? Yeah. So yeah. in in Thomas Boston's notes, he shows that this distinction between the law in the law as it comes to us in the form of covenant works versus the law as it comes to us as part of the covenant of grace or mm-hmm. the law of Christ, mm-hmm. that distinction is also held by other Reformed theologians like Turretin. He quotes Turretin specifically. Mm-hmm. Uh, wow. to make that point. Wow. He also cool. quotes um, James Durham. Durham was a well-known um, Reformed Presbyterian theologian from the earlier times, you know, from the time of the Westminster Assembly. Yeah. But there's also uh, Samuel Bolton. Mm. There are many others that recognize this distinction between the law itself, the mm. matter, and the law as a covenant. Right, yeah. The law as a covenant is not the same thing as the law in terms of just the moral requirements mm. of the law. Mm. The law always comes to us in one of those forms, either mm. as a covenant of works or as a covenant of grace, mm. or as part of the covenant of grace. Right. It never comes to us independently of that. Yeah. But it is an important distinction between the, the matter and the form. That distinction is so critical. In fact, the reason why it's so important is because if you don't hold to that distinction, then you could easily become an antinomian. Right. Yeah. Right. Totally. Because if, if you don't yeah. think that's a distinction that's valid, mm. then you're going to say that the moral law, the matter of it, is inherently a covenant of works. Yeah. Yeah. And if it's inherently a covenant of works, then it can't come to you in any other way as, right. than as a covenant of works. And if yeah. that's the case, then clearly we're not under it because Paul says we're not under law. Mm. Mm. Right. He says we're not under law, but we're under grace. Yeah. The curse of the law has been fulfilled. Yeah. We all know that's true. We all know that we're justified in Christ. The curse is taken away. We're not under the wrath of God. We're not under a covenant of works. Well, if that's the case, and if the law can only be a covenant of works, yeah. then what are you going to say? You're going to be yeah. an antinomian and say we're not under the law exactly. at all. You have to reject the, to whole the thing. form. Yeah. You have to well, throw the whole thing out. Yeah. And it's like, I mean, you read, you know, even the Ten Commandments, you've got those... Um, those aspects, you know, live long in the land, 
you know, if you obey your parents right. and, you know, you, right. and, and so, yeah, the temptation is to just go, well, it's not ideal anymore. So we'll just leave the whole right. thing. Yeah, I've heard it uh, spoken of, uh, you know, in terms of trying to get through that 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 difficulty. Um, uh, the language that's been used is uh, moral and positive elements uh, of the law. Have you ever heard that um, to divide? Yes, the, I've heard, yeah. Is that more or less the same as, as what you're saying now? Or you no, saying no, no, that's a different, different issue. All right, cool. Issue. Yeah, so, that might be worth clarifying. Yeah, it's related. It's related, right, but right. it's not. It's a different issue. Um, yeah. What you're referring to is moral law versus positive law. Mm-hmm. So moral law is law that is absolutely unchanging because it's rooted in the in the absolute holiness justice and goodness of god it's Mm -hmm. god's own nature and character Mm -hmm. and so it can't change and god would not have been free to you know tell us that oh now it's okay to commit adultery or something like that right because that's god is not he doesn't have the power to contradict his own nature (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. This goes yeah. back to what we talked about in the very first episode right. where we said yeah. the absolute power of God is this concept that some medieval theologians had. Yes. And that in the, that led them to say that it's possible that God could have condemned an innocent Adam to hell. Yeah. Yeah. Because of the absolute power of God. Mm. And the reformers said, no, that's a that's wrong because it's denying the attributes of God. It's mm. denying it's actually denying the simplicity of God. The simplicity yeah, of God is that say, all yeah, of his yeah. attributes inform one another, right? Right. Totally. His his yeah. justice is loving, his love is just, his holiness is you know, all of his attributes are connected. You yeah. can't separate them out. Right. And so therefore it would not be uh possible, it's not even possible for God mm. to contradict himself mm-hmm. and to contradict his holiness and nature. Therefore, he can't dispense with anything in the moral law right he can't Got say it. oh i'm gonna now i'm gonna change it and say okay for for israel you know they had to do this but now for us in the new testament we don't have to honor our father and mother it's okay to kill now that's impossible right so the moral law is absolutely unchanging it's immutable because it's rooted in god's own unchanging and immutable attributes mm-hmm. but positive law would be all of the laws that god gave either to Israel or any, even throughout the Bible that are one time, mm. you know, that are not required by the moral nature of God, but he's making a specific commandment. So For example, the tree of the knowledge. Of good the tree. Evil. Exactly. Yeah, right. So yeah. the tree, the prohibition from eating the tree, of the knowledge of good and evil in Genesis two seventeen. that's positive law. Mm-hmm. God right. could have picked a different tree. He could have picked a different test. Right. Uh, the ceremonial law is mm. positive law. Mm. The judicial laws of Israel are positive laws, right. although there's a mixture there. There's some moral aspects to those as well, right. but mostly it's positive, especially the, the punishments. Yeah. Um, so that's the distinction between moral and positive. And so if Another, I'm re- sorry, it just uh, if I'm reading you right then, so that means the, those positive elements obviously kind of tied into the covenantal enshrinement to some degree. And so that's where the overlap lies with what you're saying or? Or uh, kind of a... uh, yes and no. So right. I would say that the idea of the covenant form that enshrines the matter, yeah. the covenant form is not the same thing as a positive law because it's not really a law. Got it. Yeah, that right? makes sense. Yeah, the covenant form is a it's 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 taking the law and then adding conditions to it and saying if you do it you'll be blessed and if you don't you'll be cursed. Yes. Yeah. So that's that makes the sense. covenant form. Got it. Yeah. Um, no, oh, that's so helpful. it's not a matter yeah. of positive law versus moral law. It's a covenant form added to the moral law. 
Right. So this isn't in actually place with of Israel. That. It's also added to the positive lot. So all three, the moral, civil, and ceremonial, are part of this whole uh, system. Yeah. Covenant of works that was this typological covenant of works that was given to Israel in the land. Mm. Mm. Yeah, that's good. That's helpful. That helps me Um, because I've often wondered about that. You know, I have to. You know, it's it's almost like you you're kind of um, hoping to find some of that language in some of those older expositions of the law because, you know, you're wanting them to, hey, wait a minute, if you go too far with this without distinguishing the moral and positive aspects, you're going to end up with kind of what we were talking about earlier in that, uh, you know, what are we just supposed to obey our parents and live long in the new covenant land? How does that work? And uh, I've, I've typically, you know, scanned for that kind of language to feel like, okay, this guy at least is not trying to, you know, um, fuse everything together um, as, as a kind of way to, to, uh, you know, really look out for what we're talking about now. But yeah, it's helpful to see that that's kind of a different thing, but somewhat related. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, you're absolutely right. Uh, even the Ten Commandments. So the Ten Commandments, that term itself is ambiguous. Mm. What do we mean by the Ten Commandments? Right. Do we mean the moral matter that is contained within the, te- the Decalogue? Or do we mean the Decalogue itself? as it was given to Israel, yeah. including all of those additional things that you're talking about, right. like, so that you, so that it may go well with you, and right. that you may live long in the land that mm. the Lord your God has given you. Mm. That particular phrase, which is added to the fifth commandment, is that part of the moral law? Yeah. Yeah, that's what we I would say no. No, no. So, yeah. And, and yeah. it's almost like... Um, you know the the issue. It's some some. I think is it the catechism, the the one of the Westminster catechisms, the summarily contained within. Yeah. Is, is summarily that comprehended. Comprehended. That's it. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I like that. That that works well. Yeah. That's and, good. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Thank goodness we have that, um, because yeah. that that sort of keeps you sane on this stuff. But also read Turretin. I right, was mentioning right. Turretin on covenant theology, but in volume two of Turretin's Selectic his Institutes of Electric Theology, yeah. Volume 2 begins with a section on the Ten Commandments Okay. before you get to the Covenant of Grace. Mm-hmm. Covenant of Grace is topic 12. The Ten Commandments is topic 11, I believe. Okay. And his exposition of the Ten Commandments is very helpful because he makes that distinction that within the Decalogue itself, there are each, he says that each of the Ten Commandments is a moral principle. Right. But in the form that it's given to Israel in the in the literal Ten Commandments, in the Decalogue, mm-hmm. the text of Exodus 20 mm-hmm. or Deuteronomy 5, there are also accidental features that are more appropriate for Israel's life in the land mm. that do not, you should not equate those with the moral law. Right, great, yeah. So that yeah. would be the, the living long in the land added to the Fifth Commandment, but it would also be the, the Fourth Commandment. Yeah. The Fourth Commandment has both a moral and a positive aspect to mm. it. The moral aspect is the underlying moral requirement that mm-hmm. mankind is required to set aside a portion of time for mm-hmm. the worship of God. Mm-hmm. But there's also a positive aspect of it. And the positive aspect that was given to Israel was the seventh day. Right. As And that would be as yeah. that bringing that actual eschatological sign yeah. into it, right? Yeah. 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 So Turgeon is very clear in not equating the moral law with the Decalogue, mm. but recognizing still. So this is a very important point here. And mm-hmm. I myself in the past have made this mistake okay. where I've said that we got to just say that the entire Decalogue uh, is one unit and it's it's only the law of 
works as it was given to Israel. Mm-hmm. And so we got to just take that whole thing and abolish it and mm-hmm. then see Christ and see what, uh, see how those commandments are carried over into the law of Christ. Mm-hmm. And then when you do that, that leaves you with big questions about the fourth commandment where now you don't have any kind of, you don't necessarily see any moral carryover. Right. Right. So, so we got to be careful about that. We mm-hmm. got to maintain the idea that the 10 commandments that each of the 10 commandments including the fourth contain an underlying moral principle that continues in every age that's rooted in god's unchanging character Mm -hmm. but the specific form of each commandment can change in the in the covenantal form that it takes whether it's the covenant that works with adam in the garden or the covenant that works with the typological covenant that works with israel Mm -hmm. or the covenant of grace in christ Mm -hmm. the law of the hands of christ Mm -hmm. Huge. So we have to maintain a careful balance here between uh, it's it's a it's a balance of not only distinguishing between the moral and the positive. So it's good that you brought that up, okay? Because there are positive aspects in the Ten Commandments, <laughs> right? Uh, Got to distinguish where the moral and the positive are, mm-hmm. um, and then the second thing is we've got to distinguish between the form and the matter. The matter itself is unchanging, but the form is what changes. Good, yeah. So. Hey, just uh, one more potential spanner in the works. Uh, just, just you know, and feel free to shrug this off, and we can talk about it some other time. But how do how do you see that working with natural law? You know, with the moral sort of uh, you know essence there, um, it seems like that would work well. Just to say, well, moral law basically, you know, it, it's that's the covenant of works written on the heart. That moral law, uh, it, it remains at some level. Uh, yeah, you know, or does so. it get more complicated than that? In in uh, in your view. Um. No, I think what you just said is right. Uh, yeah. I guess the question would be, should we view natural law as being in the form of a covenant of works or not? Right. And I think it is. I think that even though the covenant of works itself was broken, Adam failed to keep it, yet the, and so therefore it cannot be activated in the sense of bringing about right. the eschatological goal. The eschatological goal is permanently retracted mm-hmm. because of Adam's sin. Mm. But it still exists as a principle that right. this is what God requires, and everyone knows that in their heart. Right. You know, Paul says that in Romans 1 and 2. And even even on the so, fourth commandment, I mean, this might be a little bit off base, but, um, you know, I might have even got this idea from Klein. I can't even remember. Uh, but you know, obviously, the big thing with the with the you know the Sabbath attachment to the covenant of works in the garden was, hey, this is heaven. This is what you're working mm-hmm. for, and of course, that as you say is not is not a possibility for man under a covenant of works in any sense now. But with every one of those Sabbaths that roll by, even though it's not a promise, it's a it's it's a it's a the reality of the end of history coming. It's the reality of that day. That will eventually catch up, and the, 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 the not the promise of of, of heaven, but really, I suppose the uh, the judgment, yeah. the judgment, yeah. And so, mm-hmm. even there's some way in which you know, even though man's not going to keep a Sabbath or anything, uh, you know, connected to his moral, uh, what is the word, uh, obligation? I think you said earlier uh, to to worship. Um, there's something about that. I th- I'd like to look at that further. But um, yeah, I mean, it's just an interesting interplay. I think a lot of what we do 
year in establishing the the moral law and the Ten Commandments and you know and what, what exactly is going on there will help a lot with figuring out what natural law should look like how it works um, but that's kind of off topic in terms of what we're talking about here uh, which is really for Christians right <laughs> the third use yeah. of the law and so forth um, but yeah I mean okay so we looked at neo-nominism we've talked a little bit about that um, You've got you've got one of the little sub points here. I'd be interested to see, uh, or maybe talk a little bit around the, the more the obedience for assurance and faith becomes faithfulness because obviously this is big with um, a lot of anti right stuff and um, I think a lot of people live in that world right now. What what are we saying about that? How does this all play into? Uh, you know, we mentioned you 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 there is a conditionality with faith. There is, um, you, you need to lay hold of the promises, receive them. That's something we can say quite freely. But there's some sort of disconnect in terms of how that moves into our obedience and works. Um, uh, help us understand that. Well, one of the ways you can tell <clears throat> that someone is a neonomian or a monocovenantalist is if they don't clearly distinguish between faith itself as that receptive instrument that lays hold of Christ and mm -hmm. embraces Christ mm -hmm. and the obedience that flows from faith as the fruit of faith. Yeah. And faith itself is this, it's not a work. It's not an act of obedience. It's not something that we give to God. It's simply receiving. It's simply laying hold of the promise. It's mm -hmm. embracing Christ and mm -hmm. receiving Christ. Mm. And then it contains within itself a degree of assurance now, full assurance comes from the reflex act as we look to, look upon our faith and we look upon the work of grace in our hearts. That gives us a secondary level of assurance. Mm -hmm. But that initial act of laying hold of Christ and trusting in him mm -hmm. and trusting in the promises of the gospel contains within itself the seed of assurance. Right. And it's from that assurance then that we produce the obedience that is the fruit of faith. Mm. And so a neonomian won't distinguish between those two things and will just say, well, you've got to believe, and belief then becomes more like this idea of assenting to the truths of the gospel or something, yes, and yeah. committing your life to Christ, mm -hmm. and then you've got to obey, and this is what we do to be faithful to the covenant. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and right. and so another thing you can tell a neo, another acid test of a neonomian is: do they think that repentance is prior to faith or after faith? Right. What is okay. repentance? Repentance. It's not just simply being sorry for your sins. Repentance is recognizing that you've sinned and mm -hmm. desiring to grow in sanctification. Mm -hmm. You can only do that if you already have apprehended the mercy of God in Christ. Right. That's why the Shorter Catechism definition is so clear that repentance happens in apprehension of the mercy of God. Right. Calvin says anyone who thinks that repentance is prior to faith doesn't even know what they're talking about. Wow. They have no idea what faith is. Wow. Calvin is very clear that repentance is the fruit of faith because right. it's repentance is a really a lifelong thing. It's a yeah. lifelong yeah. process of, yeah. of wanting to turn from your sin, wanting to hunger and thirst after righteousness to be more like Christ. Mm. And mm. that can only be true evangelical repentance if faith has already come before to lay hold of Christ. I've heard it spoken of as the other side of the coin. Um, yeah. Yeah. So if, the faith uh, it's the other side of the faith actually i don't sure. really like that term. yeah because i don't like too that. close i was about to say like yeah. are you comfortable with that yeah yeah i don't think so because if you say that faith and repentance are just two sides of the same coin it's like you could then that you're coin. not yeah then it doesn't matter which side you look at first right right right, right. yeah and i want to say no it, uh, that faith is prior you've got to lay hold of christ first receiving right. his righteousness 
receiving yeah. the gift of his satisfaction of the law, knowing that it is finished, mm. that the righteousness has been brought in, that your sins have been paid for, the curse of the law has been lifted. Mm. You're free from the law as a covenant of works in Christ. Mm. Only then, once that has been received by a work of grace in your heart, that's effectual calling, that's mm -hmm. the sovereign work of grace, changing your heart to, to, to receive the fullness of Christ, in, in all of his offices, but focusing particularly on his priestly office, mm. as he has kept the law for us and atoned for our sins, only then can you desire to grow in sanctification as the result of that faith. Mm. Mm. Only then can you lay hold of the, the power of the gospel and the, the ministry of the Spirit in your heart to bring forth the fruits of faith in continuing obedience and turning from your sin and putting to death your sinful deeds and desires. If you do that, if you start to repent, if you start, quote unquote, repent, it's mm -hmm. not true repentance, but if you try to repent of your sins and try to be obedient before you've received Christ, then it's, what are you doing? It's 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 the epitome of a, a kind of worldly repentance, isn't it? Uh, it's not only yeah. worldly repentance, it's salvation by works. Well, You're trying that, yeah, to be saved yeah. by your works. Yeah. Trying to be saved by becoming a better person. Right, right. Yeah. So you've denied Christ. So the only way you can have true repentance, true evangelical repentance, truly putting to death your sinful deeds and desires and desiring to grow in holiness and sanctification, if you've already received Christ, mm. Amen. and you've already rested in his completed finished work, that mm. he has already done it. He's already paid for your sins. Mm. You're not trying to pay for your sins yourself. Right. He's already fulfilled the law by his act of obedience. You're not trying to fulfill that righteousness by your own deeds, your own yeah. sinful your, your own sanctification is imperfect. How could, mm. it, how could it stand the test of the perfect scrutiny of God's absolute justice and holiness? It right. can't. Yeah. The and righteousness that, of Christ can do that. Because then it just comes down to like, have I repented properly? And, you know, and you just back to exactly. the, the, whole, the whole initial slam. Then there. you're back to this yeah. covenant of grace that has been turned into a covenant of works. Right. Where you got to repent hard enough and be obedient and keep on trying to be more faithful and more obedient in order to be right with God. Man. And, and that's some of those, uh, so. read some of those uh, guys, you know, just just uh, Thomas Watson on repentance or something, and you're like, whoa, you know, <laughs> it's just it's just like treaties after treaties, just telling you yeah, how you should like, repent. And there's you know, seven stages to true repentance. Oh, you know, man. you know, and, yeah. and it's like you go to heaven on the on the, the you know on the tears of your repentance, and you know they'll, right. they'll use language like that and. I suppose, you know, you can assimilate some of that language once you've got this thing down and once you understand, well, in the same way that we're we're sort of, you know, spending the rest of our lives consecrated to Christ and seeking to do that in the best way possible, but in no way affecting our standing before God because yeah. of this idea. I suppose you can bring some of that in, but uh, that language gets crazy sometimes, and I think it's, it's, yeah. it's harmful. Um, you know, there's one thing I wanted to say yeah. before we wrap it up, mm. and that is this whole idea of, uh, understanding the third use of the law in the context of federal theology, mm -hmm. that we're not under the law as a covenant of works, but we are under the law as part of the covenant of grace, the law in the hand of Christ. Mm -hmm. This whole idea is so important. And really it is, to me, the, the classic passage for this is Romans 6 and 7. That's where Paul really makes this clear. Right. Because he says in Romans 6, he says, we're not under the law, but under grace. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. Now, one of the key things you have to understand about that is whenever Paul uses the word the law, 
99% of the time, it helps if you, in your own mind, put in the law as a covenant of works. Right. Okay. If you don't put in that added phrase as a covenant of works, then it sounds like he's saying we're not under the moral law at all. Okay. It goes yeah, back to that cool. thing we were saying before, right? Mm-hmm. About the matter versus the form. Right. And if you don't make that distinction, then it sounds like he's saying we're not under the matter. Right. Yeah. And so, but it's very helpful if you, every time Paul used the word law, not every time, because there are a few cases where he says the law of Christ or the law of the spirit or the law of faith. In those cases, you don't want to put in as a covenant of works. Right. <laughs> but but in most of the time, most of the passages in Paul were using the term law, mm-hmm. especially in the ones where he's saying something negative, like right. that we're not under it, we die to it, we're free from it. It helps to say the law is a covenant of works. Mm-hmm. Once you see that, it clears everything up. Yeah, we're not under the law as a covenant of works. We're under grace. Yeah, yeah. That is the law in the hands of Christ. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, you know. And then Romans seven too. I got to read this before we close. That's this a, is yeah, so powerful. Sure. Romans seven. And I'm not talking about the section from verse seven to the end about the struggle with sin. Right, right, right. I'm talking about the first paragraph. Okay. The one that everybody ignores. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm talking about Romans seven one to six. Okay. You've got it. This is so crit- critical. This is so powerful. Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. Mm. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Mm. Verse 4. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law, quote unquote, adding in as a covenant of works, Mm -hmm. through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. That's awesome. Yeah. Isn't that it right there? That's it. Just the two Adam thing, the the way that we are just dead 100% to that, that, um, that covenant of works idea. And alive to uh, married in a covenant with a with another head, and you know, we're it's married just, to another head. We're not yeah. we're not married to the law. We're married to Christ. Exactly, yeah. the law in the hands of Christ. And and also, this is so powerful too. I think is that you see here how it's not only that. See, the third use of the law can easily be like we were saying. It can be easily uh, mis mis uh, taught mis. Uh, communicated right as in this monocovenantal way where it becomes this neonomian thing that you've got to be more faithful to be more obedient to have more assurance and all that mm-hmm. it, it can so easily lead to that but notice how paul clearly ends that he just destroys yeah. that he right. says you've died to that yes exactly yeah he says it's not just that we're required to keep the law in the hands of christ he says no you have died to the law as a covenant of works mm. through the body of christ through your union with christ because mm. remember the law as a covenant of works was satisfied by christ right right he has satisfied it both aspects the mm. curse and the positive requirements of it mm. and since you are in union with him you are you are not only free from the laws of covenant of works, you are viewed in the eyes of God as if you satisfied the law of the covenant. Right, of right. There we go. Yeah. Right? yeah. The curse Amazing. has been paid, the ransom has been paid, 
and the righteousness has been fulfilled through Christ. Mm. And so therefore, Paul is saying, in order to properly live out the third use of the law, in order to properly do the third G of gratitude using the Heidelberg's system, mm -hmm. in order to do that properly and correctly in a way that is truly evangelical and truly Christ-honoring, you, you must, you must understand and relish the reality of the fact that you have died to the law mm. as a covenant of works. Yeah. Don't just skip over that and say, okay, let's move on to the third use of the law now and let's really, really try hard to keep it. Right, right. Because if you skip that step, then it's going to turn into that neonomian thing. Oh man. You gotta you gotta start with that first step. You have died to the law as a covenant mm -hmm. of works. Mm -hmm. Now, you didn't just die, you also were raised, and so now you're married to another husband. You're married to Christ. Yeah. So therefore you receive the law from him now, the same matter, but mm -hmm. a different form, mm -hmm. from his hands. Mm -hmm. Not as if it's saying to you, You better do this, or otherwise there's something wrong with you, and maybe right. you're not right with God, and maybe you're not saved. No, you do this because you have been saved. You do yeah. this because you have died to the law and been raised with him to do this of life. Mm, mm. So the third use of the law now takes on a whole different cast, a whole different approach, a whole different mm. understanding, mm. where it's driven by assurance yes. rather than placing all your assurance in the balance and you're just not sure yet. Mm. And you got to do all this third use stuff to make sure. Right. No, it's driven by assurance. Yeah, yeah. And then from that assurance, because you've died to the law, as the covenant of works, and because you've been raised into newness of life with Christ, you now walk in that new life, mm. and mm. you receive those commandments, the same matter, the same Ten Commandments as to the matter, but you receive it now from the hands of Christ as your guide to faithful obedience, so that you can more and more die into sin and live unto righteousness in union with Christ. Yeah, amen. As you put it, yeah, obedience for assurance is the old way, uh, or, or at least the Neonomian way. Uh, assurance right. for obedience for is what obedience. we're talking about now. Brilliant. Um, I love that. And, you know, the other thing is just that what else? I mean, pastorally, you know, you just see people struggle in your own heart, I suppose, as well. But, you know, some people really have to wrestle with very, very deeply ingrained stuff for the rest of their Christian lives. Yep, they absolutely. are not going to be able to make it if, they're, if they haven't got this right. Um, right. You know, you are just simply... You know, you get those tough nuts out there that are going to persevere at some external hard-shelled level. But, you know, you get other people that are just going to be real with it all. And yeah. and they know what's going on in their own heart and remaining sin. And, you know, you've got some deep-seated problems to work through. And it's not you're not just going to be able to take a you know silver bullet and get rid of it in one day or find that magic sermon. Uh, you really have to walk it out. And this is the only way that that's ever going to uh, happen when you know that you are 100%. Uh, dead to the law and alive in Christ, and and the assurance uh, is what drives every bit of your struggle from that point on. I mean, it's the number one way that we're gonna. It's the only way we're gonna persevere correctly. And as you say, even beyond that, it's it's the you know what exalts Christ at the end of the day. Um, you know, this is the. It's a joyful obedience. It's an evangelical obedience. Yeah. Right. We do it because we've been delivered. We've been we want to obey now. Our right. hearts have been changed. We've been saved by the grace of Christ. So we yeah. desired it. We hunger and thirst after righteousness. Yeah. We're not doing it with these conditions that, oh, you know, yeah. if your obedience is not good enough, if your faithfulness is not long enough, if your faith is not hard enough, you yeah. know, all of those conditions are wiped away because they're fulfilled by Christ. This affects the way you preach as well. 
you know imagine i mean if you don't this get is this the indicative yeah. this is the indicative and the imperative indicative is you've already received all of these things mm. in christ therefore live accordingly this is who you are in christ yeah yeah it's great. Even what you were saying earlier about repentance and just that side of the coin thing. I mean, you know, that even that, just getting that right is going to affect the way that you approach delivering, you know, the gospel, essentially, and, and what, what the passage is calling people to. It helps me a lot, you know, definitely uh, clarifies some things that are constantly yeah. just murky, you know, sometimes. And I think that's great. So, yeah. The, the marrow tradition on the law which is this idea of the law in the hands of Christ. We've died to the law as a covenant of works, but we're married to Christ and received the law in the hands of Christ. <clears throat> was There were some people in, in that time, in the 1700s, in the Church of Scotland, who suspected that this was antinomian. Mm. And they had fears about it. And so, of course, the Church of Scotland, they condemned right. the marrow. They said, you shouldn't read it. Yeah. Um, and the marrow men responded to it, and they said, when the General Assembly of the Church of Scotland in 1720 condemned this book, they inadvertently condemned many precious, sweet gospel truths. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. <laughs> One of which is this beautiful doctrine of the law in the hand of Christ. Yeah. Amen. And how sweet that is and how important that is for our assurance, for our growth in grace, for our sanctification, for seeing how justification is the engine that drives the train of sanctification and for seeing the third use of the law in a proper way and not in a way that leads us back to the laws of covenant of works uh, and so there's some sweet precious gospel truths that need to be upheld and this is the key to it yeah. you know what's interesting is that the westminster confession larger catechism mm -hmm. even comes close to this they don't explicitly say well, I, I the can't. law in the hand of Christ, but yeah. they come very close. This is in larger catechism, question 97. Right. What special use is there of the moral law to the regenerate? Although they that are regenerate and believe in Christ be delivered from the moral law as a covenant of works. Mm -hmm. So there's that first part. Mm -hmm. That's Romans 7, 4. Mm -hmm. So as thereby they are neither justified nor condemned, Yet, besides the general uses thereof common to them with all men, it is of special use, that is the moral law, it's of special use to show them how much they are bound to Christ. Wow. Yeah. It doesn't say bound to the law, yeah. bound to Christ wow. for his fulfilling it mm. and enduring the curse thereof in their stead and for their good. Mm. And thereby to provoke them to more thankfulness. <laughs> yeah. There's the gratitude. Yeah and to express the same in their greater care to conform themselves thereunto as the rule of their obedience. Hmm. So this is a this is yeah. a reformed doctrine. This is yeah. not some like unique thing. This isn't just Klein or some, you know, right, right, not right. just Thomas Boston or Edward Fisher. This is there is a reformed basis to this. Oh, amen. I mean, you know, it's not Roman Catholicism so, at some level, yeah. you know, and, and I think you see yeah. that going back to what we were saying earlier, you know, you've got you've got the gospel in this one, you know, versus not in the other one. And and yeah, right. where that gets complicated, it should just yeah. be clarified immediately. Yeah, amen. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's a great place to, to leave it. Um, and a good roundup of, of where this whole, whole discussion has been leading. Uh, I know everyone watching this wants to thank you. So I, I'll go ahead and thank you on their behalf. Thanks so much, Lee. It's been great uh, just, just working yeah, through this. Yeah. Um, 
and so you know uh, we've had some great feedback and just um some few comments on the on the facebook page various forms i don't know my, there's my page there's i don't know lee's page there's whatever you can just get on the youtube channel and, and leave some comments there or send an email or whatever you want to do um be great to hear from you uh and otherwise uh, let's put this into practice, man. This is a uh, tonic for my preaching. That's for sure. And, uh, <laughs> yes. Amen. Yeah. Amen. So this is exciting stuff. And then just, you know, makes you want to go out and live Christianity, right? It's just amazing what it does for you. <laughs> you know, all of a sudden you're excited to be a Christian. Isn't it that actually something? makes you want to be obedient, right? <laughs> right. Imagine that, you know, um, anyway, cool. So we'll play out at this point. Yeah. Thanks a million, Lee. Appreciate it again. Mm-hmm.